Welcome everybody to the Voices from the Northeast Podcast. Morning podcasters. You know, I was born in North Seaton Colliery. When I, when I were a lad, I should have remembered that because my mother used to work for them. I'm champion for me, absolutely fine. And who doesn't make the selection box for breakfast? Eee, that was Christmas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She went flying over me, Paul, into Bustelli. Welcome back, everybody. Apologies for the long break. It was a longer break than we meant for it. Um, but shall we just say we've had summer? So We've enjoyed our summer. It's been a lovely summer, which is really funny because right now what you can't see is that we are sat in the new podcast studio room that we have at home, um, full on arms wrapped round your waist right now, great big dressing gown on, and the rain is lashing against the window outside. Yeah, I feel like we returned to work and summer kind of crashed out. <laughs> yeah, we did. Um, and it full on feels like autumn right now. Mm. Yeah. Well, we have a, a, a treat tonight. I've posted a little bit about this one on social media a few times. Um, we've got a brand new voice for the podcast sharing a really, really wonderful story. So tonight you're going to hear an interview that I've recorded with a guy called Ralph. I say a guy called Ralph. Um, <laughs> this is, this is a, I'm sure you won't mind me saying this is an older man called Ralph and he'll, he'll, he'll give you his age and, and talk about his story soon. Um, Ralph is an absolute delight to have got to, to to meet let alone actually interview uh now i did the interview you just met ralph but first impressions and thoughts well i've met him a handful of times what a lovely gentle unassuming but interesting man he obviously very much values his family and the stories that have come with his family so it's his family that he's going to be talking about in definitely. this episode definitely and i mean he he says the person he's going to talk about in tonight's episode is his his hero and that's his grandfather um and the story he's gonna we're gonna tell you is a condensed story of his grandfather's life uh ralph is going to come back on the show and and we're going to talk about life in asherton in the 1950s and, and through the 60s and, and 70s and, and beyond um ralph's one of the first people to have been a student at northumberland college as well when it first opened in asherton um, he's had a really interesting life himself, but on tonight's show, he's going to talk about his grandfather. So I'll play the interview, sit back and enjoy this absolutely fascinating story. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Ralph Morn. 85 year old and I'm here to talk about my grandfather Joseph Morn, commonly known as Joe Morn. Born in 1876. He was 62 when I was born, 1938. And I suppose that like most children, that grandfather or grandparents are there in the background, the foreground. But it's only when you get into your teens and early life that you really sit down and talk to them. And this happened to me when I was about 18. I had started a year or so before 
as an apprentice mine surveyor. And I used to go and see my granddad who lived in 56 Bothell Cottages, which are aged miners' cottages at the west end of Washington. And I used to love to talk to him. Um, he was, a, to me, a little, small, five foot four. He was a cripple. He had a club foot. Um, Grey-haired. Smoked a clay pipe. And he, he could make you laugh and cry at the drop of a hat. But it was only when I started working down the pit, he asked me how... I felt about going down, seeking the men, crawling along faces, this sort of thing. And I knew through my father that my, my grandmother, his mother, had died when my dad was six and they had a bit of a rough time. And so I started asking him uh, a few questions about what had happened. And he went into the bedroom came out and he gave me uh, an exercise book, which I've got here in front of me now. Uh, and in manuscript handwriting, he had basically wrote his life story. So that's what I'm here to talk about today. So shall we start with his younger life? Because he had quite a difficult start in life, which you touched on there in the introduction. Do you want to fill listeners in on how his life started? Well, yes, while well, reading the book, uh, you, you think you were uh, reading um, a Catherine Cookson yeah. novel. Um, in fact, in some things that, that were in it, you would think, well, you couldn't make this up. <laughs> yeah. But he starts his book by saying, I was born out of wedlock. Mm. Um, he knew the name of the father, who then disappeared and joined the army and went to India. Right. And... His mother, when he was born, was only 16 years old. This was in 1876. And it wasn't until uh, the census of 1891, when he was living in Pegswood, um, with his mother, but he was down as, she had subsequently married and had kids, down as um, Sepson. Right, okay. So he, throughout his early life, thought his mother was his sister. Goodness. So in Pegswood, they were living with his grandparents, is that the he case? Was, he was living with his mother and what he perceived as his husband. mother, yeah, right. And they had kids, but he was down on the census as stepson. Right. Because you relate everything to yeah. the head of the house. Yes. So he was. He didn't realise until then that his mother actually, it was his mother, yeah, not his, his sister. sister. Wow. But the miner's life in those days was very much like um, the farm hinds. Mm. They had a, a yearly contract, a bond, which they had to sign, which they got certain things for, mainly a house mm. in, in the... Uh, with the farmers, the labourers, sometimes got a little bit of land or they had a ton of potatoes or something. Right. Whereas the miners got a cottage or a house, uh, if they were lucky, would mm. pass for a house and uh, possibly a few coals, this, yeah. this sort of thing. Well, he was went to live with his 
mother, who was thought it was his sister, uh, and his, his grandparents. No, they used to move back and forward. After a year, they could move and sign on somewhere else. So when he was seven, his grandfather was living at Longest Colliery. Oh, all right. And here there was a he was in school when he was about seven year old at the school in, in, in Longest, which I think is still there, um, an old building, when the uh, dirty uh, miner came in, obviously straight from the pit, black, and spoke to the teacher, and the teacher said, Joe, come here. He said, I want you to go straight home. No mm -hmm. plane, straight home. So he did this, and when he got home, here, his grandfather was lying on the table uh, he had been hit by a fall of stone and was dead. Crazy. Um, so this was the first setback. His grandmother, who he absolutely doted on, um, went to live in Pegswood with the daughter and his subsequent stepfather. Um, but my, my grandfather he had this club foot which uh, I, th I think nowadays would have been sorted straight away yeah he was in and out of the hospital quite a few times during his lifetime uh, early early days uh the rvi and uh, so that wasn't a very good start to life mm. but uh, when he was 12 years old that's when he started down the pit 12 years old 12 years pit. old um he had been born in a uh, little village, uh, Mount Pleasant, uh, which is near Coxo in County Durham. Durham way, yeah. A part, it's now been overtaken by uh, Spennymoor, as yeah. grown and grown. So it doesn't exist anymore. But that was his life, going back and forth between various collieries and uh, various kinds of habitation. Um, and then not, not a very good early life. Not a, not the easiest start, but like you said, a Catherine Cookson novel kind of. Yeah. I mean, that it really is. So, what about his time in the mines then? So, from twelve, well, for the rest of his life, more or less, he's in the mine. Well, uh, his first shift, he finished school on the Friday, and on the Sunday, two old shifters from the pit came to the house and said, "Right." Um, starting on the Monday where you can start today there's been a fall of stone in one of the main roadways we've got to go and shift that so that it's clear for the start of Monday so he went down with them with his bait and his uh, lamp his miner's lamp and they took him to uh, the a pumping station where he had his job was to yoke the the galloway the, the pony onto the beam and make sure that it didn't stop and it kept the pump going. Well, he was sitting in the dark rather than the gleam of, of, of a Davy lamp yeah. and uh, what seemed to be hours. And eventually he went for his bait to have something to eat and found out that some of the mice had beaten him to part of it. He said to me, uh, once or twice he had yoked the undone the pony, yoked it up, knowing fine well from mining uh, families, a, a galloway always knew the way out, it could smell the fresh air, and he knew it would take him to the pit bottom eventually. Right. 
But he thought, no, no, they said they would come back for me. So he said, I better do as I'm told. So he, he did that. And after about 12 hours, he came back and took me. So that was his introduction to, to mining. Um, at 12. At yeah, and 12. as a 12 year old with a club foot. Yeah. So he subsequently went into, into the mines, but he was more on, not on the face, not working, but he was on haulage, uh, pump work, this sort of thing. Mm. And during that time, and in the villages, I think this was the uh, birth of his interest in the hardship and inequality that the miner was having to face. And it spurred him on to do his union work, Mm. and his, his Labour Party work. And we're into the early 1900s at this yes. point then, aren't we? And yeah. then, because he, he had quite a tragic, I guess, home life at that point later, you know, when he's a young man, didn't he? he you know, his own family. Well, my, <coughs> my grandmother um, was, came from Chester Moor in Durham, but they had moved to Pegswood, and that's where he met her. Right. Um, he was very... Uh, religious in as much as he went to uh, chapel uh, on the only day they had really out of the mine in the winter I used to say they never saw the sun mm. um, they went down when it was dark came up when it was dark um, uh, he, he used to spend many happy hours down in Bottle Woods right um, but that's where he had met me me grandmother and they were married and she was and he got sick of his life in the pit and she wanted to try and get over it. And he, he found work at, at Elsick in the Armstrong um, Munition Works, right. where um, they subsequently had two boys. And tragically, they both died within a, a very short time of each other when they were about two mm. or three. And um, where they were buried, was in a churchyard which where my grandma and granddad were living virtually overlooked the, the, the cemetery so this played on the mind and they, they came back to Ashington right um, where they subsequently had a daughter Florence and it was it's fairly obvious from uh, reading the, the book the apple of his eye very intelligent uh, I mean, my, my grandfather had had very little um, education in that sense, but he read voraciously. Obviously, he couldn't play sport uh, and that sort of thing. He, for Pegswood cricket, he used to be a scorer, but you know that was the limit of his uh, expertise in, in, in sport. So he, he read everything, uh, and life was going on quite well. Um, Whereabouts in Ashton were they living? They know? were living in Hawthorne Road. Hawthorne Road. Hawthorne Road. In fact, I think it was Hawthorne Terrace then. But anyway, it was Hawthorne Road. Um, and my grandmother was pregnant with my father. And here, Florence was about nine. And here she caught some illness and died um, about a month before my father was born. Goodness. So... Tragedy yeah. struck again uh, with the expectancy of a new life coming into the family. Uh, one had been taken away, obviously a much loved one. Mm. 
Mm. Um, why how this didn't affect my grandmother in Podbury, it's just my dad was born earlier, I don't know. Um, so that didn't help matters. And uh, so that was his early tragedies. Um, he threw himself into uh, work. He, he was a very, I'm saying religious man. This knocked his uh, thoughts about what's God doing to me, mm. you know? Yeah, and as I'm it would. Reading the book, he, he hit the uh, beer a mm. little bit. Um, he fell out with the church, but some of his workmates, one of them, persuaded him to go back to some uh, meeting. He started going to meetings uh, at, the, at the church, and then this is when he started more with the Labour Party, getting into, into uh, meetings with them, and this fired his imagination, and uh, the rest of his life was dedicated to, to, to helping man. Um, so that's that's what I was going to ask. His, so, did how long did your grandmother last? Because I remember, did you say? Well, she, she about six years later. Yeah. By which time she would be uh, in early forty, I think. Um, she was pregnant again, and she had my uncle Joe, my dad's brother, and. Ten days after he was born, my grandmother died. Uh, with basic, I think, with bad aftercare. Yeah. It wouldn't. If it happened now, nowadays there would be major inquiries as to why that happened. So there he was, faced with a six-year-old, a ten-year-old, ten-day-old baby, and all his work and other activities outside of work, which he was faced with. Uh, so that was 1917 so um, that was his early uh, first 20 years of marriage he had uh, one two three five kids and two survived and then in 1917 so we're still during the first world war as well yes um, so was that what was he doing during the first world war was that reserved <coughs> occupation work with that well it was a reserved occupation yeah. And um, well, he was uh, speaking on platforms all over the place. Uh, uh, you must appreciate the, I mean, the Miners' Union as such had been going for a very long time, mm -hmm. but um, it was more and more uh, uh, concentrated nationwide then. And the uh, Labour Party was in its starting to be in its infancy and, mm -hmm. and growing. And uh, he just, I mean, my dad initially. Obviously, he had to be. Uh, my granddad had to do something with a ten-day-old baby. Unfortunately, he uh, was very good friends with uh, a couple who was a farmhand, and he changed jobs every oh, every year. Um, he couldn't read, couldn't write. Uh, she couldn't read or write, but obviously she had a heart of gold, and she took it upon herself to uh, bring me Uncle Joe up mm -hmm. because speaking to him later in life the first 11 years of his life he, he must have been at 11 schools 
various schools, various all over the place when he started school. Okay, um, because the people looking after him were yes. moving around for these jobs. Yeah, yeah. and uh, my dad was left with um, housekeepers. Uh, my granddad obviously had to keep the house. Um, he was by then Czech women in Ashton Colliery. Yeah, go on, explain what a Czech women in, because this is r clearly linked to his union work. Yes, it was uh, it was a post which is voted for, um, whoever put up for it, the candidates, were voted by the uh, the, the miners uh, of the union to um, check with the coal that they had uh, hewn out of the pit. Uh, the coal owners had their own man, the weighman, and the Czech weighman, obviously, as the word says, was there to make sure that the man who had uh, filled the tubs into the uh, into the tubs of coal got the amount of money that he was due for filling mm -hmm. that amount of coal. So he off and on during his life he was a Czech woman for about twenty nine years in Ashton. Right. Um, so. So he, even back then the assumption that you were going to be paid a fair wage for the fair work you'd done was an assumption. It wasn't a reality. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the miner. Uh, the owners were very clever and they, they had a, a system which uh, the men knew was uh, Billy Fairplay. Um, you can appreciate when the tubs came to the surface they were tipped onto a screen right. and that's what weighed the coal. Now these, the screen uh, was like a, a sieve, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, well it retained some uh, majority of the coal on the top of it but the smaller stuff fell through well the miner wasn't paid for that okay so to counteract that the miners started um, filling the coal with what they called a grip which is a if you can imagine a, a coal filler shawl was like a big uh, round oval uh, mm -hmm so they can get as much coal on it as possible not, not like a normal shovel yeah no they've got them at uh, Woodhorn Museum hanging up yes, yes it's a big it's almost like a a leaf almost yes, that's, that's upturned right. like on the scoop. edges yeah big scoop yeah. well if, if you replace a lot of that by tines in other words like a fork all right with uh, gaps in between and the saw uh, positioned the, the uh, gaps so that that was the size of the coal that they weren't paid for. Right, okay. So the coal that they filled with the yeah. grape, if, if they couldn't pick it up, they wouldn't get paid for yeah. it. Whereas, and this was Billy Fairplay. Clever. So that was, as I say, my grandma died in 1917, and uh, my dad was faced with having to come home at night, because he was at school by then, um, he said, I didn't know who was going to be there. Uh, and eventually, the woman I knew was my grandmother, which was actually my step-grandmother. Uh, my grandfather uh, married in uh, 1926 or 7. Uh, I think it was just a strike. And uh, that's the woman I knew was my grandmother. But she had... Uh, sort of looked after the house and the dad for oh, a couple of years before that and they eventually got married. Right, uh -huh. 
So mm. that was the situation uh, in with my dad's younger life. Yeah. And uh, having said with my Uncle Joe and my dad, the start in life that they had, um, my dad left school when he was 15. They both went on to become qualified mine managers. Right. Which my granddad was very, very, very proud I imagine of. it was, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we got to the let's say the, the end of the the twenties, um, and he's he's a Czech wayman for about twenty years. Twenty nine years, I don't know. Gosh, in Ashington, in Ashington. yeah. So he stayed in Ashington yeah. for the, the and that's the early years. Part of the time, uh, as Czech wayman, because uh, miners got miners coal. Mm-hmm. It might not have been the best. There was officials coals, which were <laughs> a better quality and size <laughs> than the the, the the ordinary miner coal. But they were uh, dispatched from the land sale office, right. uh, which was uh, up uh, Council Road, uh, the, the top end, Duke Street. And uh, he was often on there as well for many, for, for, for not the colliery and there, to make sure that the miners got the allotted amount of coal that were, uh, they, they were due. So um, he was there for. 29 years off and on. And throughout that, he's doing his union work as well, which involved, oh, yes, you know, yes. what, what some of the things he did, because you talked at the very beginning about how eloquent he was, yeah. and obviously that played an important part in what he was doing yeah. for the union. So do you want yeah. to explain a little bit about what he was doing for the union at that point as well? Well, he, as I say, he was very, very well read. Mm. He could quote Shakespeare, poets, all sorts of books he read and reread things uh, a lot of my uh, union things um, and he could make you laugh he could make you cry some of the stories in his book uh, are very funny um, and once as I say he wasn't a very big man as such a obviously he um, he made up for it in orally. and I think his biggest um, hardest time he had and uh, seriously affected his health afterwards was the miners strike of 1926 um, as you can imagine uh, it started off it was a general strike in, in, in the march but after about a month all the other unions the train unions and iron and steel they had capitulated and gone back to work. It was the miners that held out for another five months. And during that time, obviously, they were speaking all over the the place uh, to, to rally the men and one thing and another. And uh, that's when, I don't see me there, so very mu- much of him, really. And it was uh, one of his lowest points in his life uh, with regard to the union when um, they had to uh, capitulate at the end in I think it was September after it was six or seven months and had to accept uh, what they were offered yeah. uh, which in, in was really a little bit less than they had got when they first started and it was he was very unfortunate in as much as he drew the short straw 
and he had to uh, go to the men and read out the proclamation to say that they were going to go back to work. Um, and as you can imagine, not only was he personally affected, um, he got a lot of brickbats mm. from various people as if to say it was him that had uh, chosen that, done this, you know, mm. and it affected him, I think, mentally as well. Uh, but he soon picked himself up, and uh, as he had to in those days, <laughs> and uh, got on with life of the best it could. So that's, I mean, that's his his strike work, well, his union work in the, during the, the big strike of the 20s, which you're right, a lot we were talking about before, people forget that early strike yeah. um, because we think of 84. Um, he then continued to work till when, the 1940s before he retired? <coughs> well, he... Or was it the late 30s? In about 19, around about the time I was born, um, he was voted off the Czech women. As I said, every year they had to be mm. voted for. And he lost out by about six or seven votes. And uh, he went on the... He, he went, believe it or not, to the... Went on the screens mm. at uh, Lionmouth. And he had started life in early days, down the pit and then on the screens. And he said to himself, that's full circle here. <laughs> I've nearly gone sixty odd year, and I'm back to where I where I started. Um, but he then had applied two or three times, if that applied is the right word, uh, to go on the Ashton Urban District Council, and he hadn't managed. But he, he put up. Um, on, well, I think the Labour Party put him as a candidate and he got voted on. So once he was on the dole, he had this uh, relief line of work uh, where he, he said he was on virtually every committee and he was about the cheapest man on the council because he didn't put any expenses in because <laughs> he wasn't losing any work. Different world then. <laughs> so he did this. Uh, for about five years on the council. When would this have been? This was about 1938, okay. uh, and he would finish, well, 43. But in the, in the meanwhile, the war had started, <clears throat> and he got a phone call, or a, a message, from um, a man called uh, Jim Bowman, who was a... Uh, a younger man than my grandfather. In fact, my grandfather had, a, I think, introduced him into the, uh, onto many a platform to speak mm. uh, for the Labour Party and the Union. And the government had, at the time, that uh, was the Ministry of Information, uh, were wanting to spread the word that, although mining was a reserved occupation during the war, a lot of miners went. To, to the army and the forces but those who stayed obviously coal was vastly important for the war effort and man being man uh, quite a few were lying idle on a Monday or a Friday possibly after a weekend on the beer um, and they wanted someone 
to go around and chivvy these people up and um, uh, Jim Bowman by then was um, had the ear of one or two uh, parliamentarians and uh, he was given the task in the northeast to get someone to do this job and he came to see my grandfather and he asked him and my granddad said well I'm not too old. He said, Joe, you're just the man we're looking for. I've known you long enough and I have every confidence in you. So he went round all the local collieries for about eight or nine weeks. Uh, they hired halls and this sort of thing. Uh, to pass the message, spread the word that, you know, come on lads, we need all your efforts etc etc mm. um and he hadn't been long finished this when here uh, the ministry of fuel and power through jim bowman again came knocking on the door and asked him he wanted uh, there was not many still being uh, idle and absent from work uh that uh they needed someone to go around and you got to the stage of prosecuting people wow because I think there must have been some uh, act of parliament saying mm. that you're just like a conscientious objector. Uh, if you're not doing you your bit. You're withdrawing your, your labour for, for the war effort. So he proceeded to visit every colliery. He was given a car, well, he had a car uh, provided, you know, yeah. not that he drove, but there was a driver there. Goodness. Um, and he, he went to every uh, Colliery in Northumberland. Um, Which back was, then was a lot. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he said, I was just so small. And mm. uh, he said, really, uh, whilst he didn't want to prosecute people right to the bitter end where it meant prison, he said, in lots of cases, you know, they um, accused themselves. They did it themselves. Mm. It wasn't him doing it. They had, their actions had made it. Yeah. Mm. So it was, he did that for about four or five years and he finished in 1945 um, just as the war had finished in uh, in the Pacific mm. and uh, he, uh, that was his uh, by then of course he was uh, <coughs> well retired he was nearly uh, 70 um, and that's when he sat down and wrote put these thoughts um, of his life uh, on, on paper. Um, as I say, well, um, he wrote quite a nice bit in here about Jimmy Bo Jim Bowman mm. and it was quite prophetic actually because what he wrote and what he expected this lad to, to aspire to um, came to fruition 10 years later when he became president of uh, the National Coal Board, which he, a position he held for quite a while, and he eventually ended up Sir James Bowman. And the thought that I had was, wow, this man up there, he knew this little man, and he had lots of things to thank him mm. for in his life, for getting into the position that he had. Do you want to find the bit in, in see if we can find it about Bowman? Well, if I can, if I can find it. Um, 
this, this is in the section where he's talking about um, people he had worked with. And <clears throat> it says, I'm now going to pass on to the present secretary, Jazz Bowman, a young man whom I have seen grow and develop in ability and wisdom in the life of the trade union. I was impressed by Jim right from the start, starting to attend our union hall at Ashington. I can honestly claim to know his work and his rapid progress. Oh yes, we had our differences, Jim and I, in the early days. He was like many more young men, and he, what he wanted, he must have in a hurry, right now, so to speak. But I always knew experience would make him wiser. He is without any doubt the most fitted man for the following in the, in the steps of old Bill Straker. In him, you have youth imbued with a lofty spirit and modern ideas to fit into the new conditions of the community he serves. And more so today when nationalisation has come to pass. I leave him here on this note. He is a man for which the future contains great things and will go far in the labour movement. I owe him much and shall ever remember him as a true pal and I'm sure he knows that and he also has a warm spot in his heart for your humble servant. Wow, he had a way with words if nothing else, didn't he? I mean. Well, yeah. The other thing I uh, was struck when I was reading this about the strike, the role of women, mm. that the women played in, in, in this, and uh, which was actually one of the uh, highlights, if that's, that's not the right word, but of the 84 strike where mm -hmm. the women... You know, they say that they hold the purse strings in the house when people are working, but they certainly help to hold the families together and, and the communities together. The, communities. the, the work that yeah. the, 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 the wives and, and, yeah. and others did during the 84 strike was incredible. But uh, he's, as uh, you say, he certainly had a way with words. Definitely. Um, Definitely. And then you came to know him as this side of him so you came to know his history yeah. and talked to him later on when you were working down the mine so do yeah. you want to talk a little bit about that when you were working in uh, down the mine and visiting him at the college <clears throat> well i used to i eventually ended up uh, after i qualified i was served me apprenticeship um in number two area um which was sort of hardly across the Dinnington, those corridors there. But I, after I qualified, um, I got a job as the surveyor of the bottle pit in Ashington. Um, and the office there was the, the Hawthorns, which is number one, first row. And um, if I wasn't in the pit, it, uh, at least once a week, I would go up to Bottle Cottage, which is only five minutes walk yeah, away, yeah, yeah. And, and see him. Because by then, I mean, I was, and this is 1962, um, he was 
eighty. He died in uh, nineteen seventy. So by then he was uh, ninety five. So he's well into his eighties. Um, it was only in his last few years he moved. Uh, he was moved into Essendine. The mm-hmm. He was one of the first people, yeah. Yes, he was one of the first people in there. But I used to go up and see him and um, have a crack at him. He asked me what I was doing and where I'd been and we'd get reminiscent for the little, you know, half an hour, three quarters of an hour. Um, And in one particular instance, uh, and when I think about it, it was part of his his psyche and his life that I've been... Uh, he'd have throughout his life he said can you come up on Tuesday son I said why he said that's when I get me calls oh right I said he said with a bit of luck you'll be here when they come I said well why he said well I'm sure they're robbing me Mm. he said I'm supposed to get six bags of coal every fortnight and the coal house was inside the house. You walk through the door and there was a uh, a place for putting the coal. He said, they bring it in bags, you know. I said, all right. He said, uh, and I'm sure the last time, he said, there you are, Joe, there's your bags. He said, and they leave the bags. There you are, six bags. He says, and you know, he says, I'm sure them buggers, excuse my French, <laughs> he said, are robbing me. He said, I'm sure they put an empty bag on their back when they bring the first one in, and that's two, according to them. And uh, it's a, and they're crunching on three or four inches of coal on the flat wagon, and he says, he's got the bloody cheek to ask me, after I've known he's robbed me of a one, he says, do you want another bag of coal for f- uh, five shilling? He says, what do you mean? He says, all that stuff that you shook off the, the, the sacks at the beginning, is old miners cool mm. and you don't want to sell me so he, he couldn't get this uh, out of his mind even then mm. about the inequality and people trying to rob folk and so um, I, sh- I said yeah I'll come up and this happened one week I, I did see them but I think he had had words and he had threatened them with uh, gone at the higher authority good for him and uh, but uh, he would just talk about expand more on mm. the experiences he yeah. had really yeah. um, and he used to tell some funny stories uh, more so when he had a time out of the pit when he had come with the hospital when he was young he'd be 13 or 14 and he had to go into what I suppose passed for the Ministry of Labour then and the bloke said well I've got a job here for you Joe he says, making hay. He says, bonny lad, he says, I can eat more hay than I can make. <laughs> so, so he, uh, <laughs> he had a w- wicked sense of humour at times. And then he ended up in Essendeen. Yes. Um, so we're coming towards, what, the late 60s there when he must have moved into. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. He was about, oh, he would be nearly 90. Yeah. Uh, me step um, grandmother uh, died in 56 so um, 
he had another 14 years uh, as a widower. Mm -hmm. But eventually he got to the stage where um, obviously my mum and my dad were worried about him and my uncle Joe. But he was adamant he was going to stop on his on, on his own as long as he could. I mean, uh, mentally, his, his faculties were yeah. sh pin sharp. Um, and then he, uh, one of his old uh, union and council people, um, came and saw him and said, "Look, they're opening this place. Do you want to go?" Um, he had been, he used to go to uh, the Thomas Taylor homes, the, the, the mourner, yeah. the, they're no longer running there, no, the council officers or something. But he used to go there for the fortnight uh, during the summer to give me mum and dad a, a bit of respite. A, a, yeah. a respite. And even there, um, my dad said, oh dear, he's been on again. I said, what's the matter like? And there had been a, a mother and daughter uh, who used to come in clean and that sort of thing around the and here my granddad said I'm sure they're stealing stuff mm. and so he watched them and they were pilfering bits and pieces out of folks's Aye. and uh, he made this known to the management who then proceeded to do a bit of inquiry, and fair enough, mm. these folk were doing it. So they got the sack. Yeah. So he said, I wasn't very well liked by that. <laughs> We'd asked them, well, just give over. He said, no, no. He said, I'm not going to. Spent a life fighting for the, the common yeah. man as he yeah. saw it, yeah. And he eventually went to uh, S&D, and an aunt of mine was, was in there afterwards. But I would go in and see him, and uh, as you saw, he was quite a character. And uh, I said, how are you doing, Grandpa? Oh, all right. He says, oh, I said, I'm getting sick of these other people because these, these old men, as he said, <laughs> him being in, yeah. in his 90s, uh, he says, I kind of get a decent conversation out of them. All I think about is horse racing and women. <laughs> and he says, you know, I'm desperate to get a bit uh, decent conversation of what's happening in the world. Yeah, and uh, well, like you said, as a as a man who was a voracious reader, you know that. Oh yeah, uh, and, and, and his brain was used to being stimulated. Saw, he always had uh, a pile of books on his bedside table. Um, I saw a book in big print, right? Because obviously he was yeah. uh, by that time um, his eyes weren't so, so good, but he reread things. He read all sorts of things. He get caught the great sections of the Bible, Shakespeare, you name it. But uh, I know me, uh, me, me mother went in the first time he was there and uh, she says, what are you wearing, Joe? He says, what do you mean? She says, well, that's not your cardigan and your shirt. And oh, so she had gone to the management and said, look, you just baggies washing up i'll wash it so i want to see him in what he's got not in a shirt with a frayed collar and you know anybody coming here i think we're definitely <laughs> typical didn't want to feel mm -hmm. as though they were um, yeah. just letting them so anyway uh, 
this was my mother and uh, my dad went in uh, one night, he used to come to Washington, we lived in Morpeth at the time and uh, he had uh, left my mother at one of my aunties and then he was going to go with my uncle for a drink and uh, he would drop the washing in and pick up the other bag and uh, I had a bit crack about one thing or another what's happening in the world and my dad said right I'm away dad I'm going to meet Andy at the Excelsior or something like that middle market <laughs> and uh, he got to the door of the room and my, uh, my granddad said uh, Ethel come here son I said, what's the matter and he walked over and he shook his hand he said, thanks for everything, son. He said, well, what do you mean? He said, I'm just thanking you for everything. He said, well, no problem. And he went away. And the following morning, about nine o'clock, he got a phone call from the home saying that when the early shift had come on, they normally took me grand out a cup of tea in at about half past six. Uh, uh, you know, waking him up, and when I'd gone in here, he had he was gone. So as it was as if he knew he was on his way out, and uh, when the doctors saw me dad, and they said it was just anno domini, just old age had um, been a contributor. There was nothing sinister, put it that way, and that was the end of a, a life well lived. Definitely. And that's why, uh, from that early days of getting this book, um, I've considered him my hero. I'm not surprised. It's an incredible life. There's a, a section at the end of the uh, of the book that we read last time. Would you like to read it again now that we're all uh, set up? How how, how he kind of ended his, uh, yeah. his memoir? Yeah, he'd been jotting a few. He called them jots. And here is the final jot. I've tried to entertain and educate and have told all worth telling. I have failed to jump many hurdles in life's steeplechase and they were, off <clears throat> they were often observed and severely uh, criticised by my fellow man. The ones I jumped successfully were never known, only to myself. Such is the way of life. Now in conclusion, we have been a product of nature, imbued with strength and weakness. And below, will you please find my final stanza, as I am living now on borrowed years, being 71 on March the 14th, 1947. And when life's curtain falls, as fall it must, and I from flesh am transported into dust, <clears throat> may there still be one hope left for me, but let there be no mourning at the bar when I put out to sea. Signed Joseph Morn, 25th of February 1947. And with that, of course, they went on to live another 23 years. That's what I find so wonderful about that ending, that he, 
he writes it as if that's the ending, yeah. and then he lives another. Well, there was many a time when I thought, later on I said, Grandad, you've got plenty of time, why don't you, you know, yeah. finish more? And he would say, no, son, that's, I'm quite happy with that. Well, I hope that was really interesting for people. I, it was absolutely amazing to sit through it. It was actually the second recording we did. Ralph came in before the summer holidays, or right at the very beginning of the summer holidays. Very early yeah, on. Yeah, and recorded that interview. And then I edited it together because it was a really long conversation with Ralph. And it just didn't work. But what we knew was that there were so many fascinating things in that interview that we really wanted to tell his granddad's story. Well, I listened to the initial recording that Paula put together and I was sat there on the sofa next to him saying, but but I want to know more about that. And I, I need to know, how did that come about? How did the Ministry of Information find this man living in, you know, bottle cottages? Like, how did, yeah. how did those two worlds kind of collide so that... It left me with more questions than answers, um, but Ralph was good enough to come back and give us more of his time. He was. He was really good because, what, like I said, I, I wanted to tell as much of that story as coherently as we possibly could for you, the listener sitting at home, hearing it because it's it's absolutely amazing that, that somebody had such a, well, Catherine Cookson-like yeah. childhood into adulthood and... You know, some of that is so relevant still now. That he was a a man who spent a massive amount of his life fighting for the the rights of the people of this town in particular, the people who worked hard day in day out. I just thought it was absolutely fascinating, and I really think the listeners, you sitting listening to this now with your headphones in, uh, I hope you found it as interesting to listen to that. And you can hear from Ralph's voice just how how much he admired his grandfather. I was going to say, even when, you know, we were stood in the middle of our kitchen holding mm. a cup of tea and he was still talking about him and you could just see that to Ralph, it's just granddad. Yeah. And like you mm. say, there's an awful lot of admiration and respect. Um, You know, he kept making reference to his granddad's stature. Yeah. You do, and you just know, kind you, of yeah. the juxtaposition between this like small man and I think he said like stooped over at one mm, point as mm. well um compared with the man who was then you know addressing yeah but isn't that the crowds. interesting thing about adulthood and then later adulthood and then you know extreme old age which is where your grandfather found himself that often us younger folk I'm saying us younger folk Craigie the kids I teach in there who are entering <laughs> about into their 20s would look at me and probably say I was old now but you tend to forget they've had a life. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's the point of what Ralph's talked yeah. about today is that guy had a life. Like when we talk about people having a life, there's so much in there. Um, and I just, I, it's fantastic that I guess we can have the opportunity to share that with more people. It's exactly what I wanted to do on the podcast. It's, it's like listening over somebody's shoulder in a pub, in a coffee shop. It should be really interesting. People should, I hope, be sitting there right now thinking, I'm pleased to listen to that. That was fascinating. And hopefully make you go away and think about your own family and the stories that exist within your own family. Um, because I think 
all families have those types of stories in them actually mm. I, and think I thought it was great that ralph turned up you know he wasn't empty-handed when he came round. He'd... no no he brought the book yeah yeah and he's it's a prized possession even with the odd pages that are starting to fall out mm -hmm. of it and i put some photographs up of uh, the book and ralph holding the book on uh, on our facebook page and instagram if you've got those social medias and you want to have a look you can see it there incredible sentimental value definitely definitely well, thank you very much for listening. Yeah, oh no, it is. Well, it's the kind of thing I said to him needs to go into Northumberland Archive mm -hmm. if he ever decides he's done with it. Um, yeah, so thank you again for listening, everybody. Hopefully it won't be as long before we get the next episode out. The silly thing is we've got a recording from Jacqueline Nadell um, <laughs> that they did a lovely interview ages ago. Um, so we just have to listen to that fully and uh, link that stuff together to get another episode out for you as soon as possible um stay tuned and uh, we'll speak to you all soon thank you very much people bye bye